This show is made possible entirely by the direct support of the listeners. To see what you can do to help, check out the big orange support box at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, On the Media, Bill Moyers Journal, The Jimmy Dore Show, and The Young Turks with a special bonus video clip for our iPhone app users that I will actually be telling you more about at the end of the show. We cover the controversial statements made by veteran White House reporter Helen Thomas. Any comments on Israel? We're arresting everybody today. Any comments Tell them on to Israel? get the hell out of Palestine. Ooh. <laughs> Helen Thomas added, Is this on? All right. As a result, Helen Thomas announced her abrupt retirement from the press corps after 50 years, just three punches short of earning a free White House party sub. <laughs> Still, the circumstances surrounding her sad resignation raise some serious issues. What's the line between opinion and opinion journalism? When does America's unwavering defense of Israel begin to compromise our unwavering defense of free speech? Does our media demonstrate a casual bias against the Arab world and the suffering of the Palestinians? These are the hard questions reporters must be asking themselves in the wake of Thomas's departure. Who's going to take her seat? Now, other White House reporters are already trying to get her front row seat. Fox News and Bloomberg will battle it out, apparently, to move up to the front row. It's prestigious to be in the front row. The definition of what's a journalist now is changing. But the seats are special, and the front row seat is the most special. Right. Oh, right! Those other questions are bull****! Who gets your chair? The coveted front row seat? Really? And by the way, Fox and Bloomberg are battling it out over it? Guys, you're already in the second row. You're right behind her. It's a tiny room. It's like six-inch difference. You're afraid you're not going to be able to hear? You worried they're going to give the seat to the guy from Afro Digest? Or maybe you think... Or maybe you think that if you're up front, the president might invite you on stage like Courtney Cox at a Bruce Springsteen concert. <laughs> hey, what do, you, what do you say about reports that the dispersants being used in the Gulf could be even more harmful than the oil in the Gulf? And I have a follow-up. Spin me! You know, uh, being physically closer to your source doesn't make you a better journalist. No offense to Edward R. Murrow and his stunning interviews with Truman, known as the Baby Bjorn Chronicles. <laughs> Is the issue with the White House press corps really how close you are? Because I watch a lot of those briefings, and it seems like the issue is not so much the seating arrangement, and more the arrangement of the words coming out of the reporters' mouths. We knew the president was a baseball fan. I uh, didn't realize he was such a NASCAR fan. <laughs> Super Bowl weekend. Have you found out anything about his plans? How is your faith guiding you? How many cigarettes a day do you smoke? Do you smoke alone or in the presence of other people? Can you give us any more detail about you know, what his workouts have been like in the morning? He's talked a great deal about what's on his iPod, to Rolling Stone magazine. Mm -hmm. What was his reaction to the death of Michael Jackson? See, it's relevant because the president mentioned he likes music, so in a way, it's, it's their duty to ask that. But a front row seat isn't the only thing at stake. Members of the press corps' prestigious front row club also get VIP access to the politicians themselves. 
as evidenced last weekend, at Vice President Joe Biden's beach boardwalk party with members of the force of state featuring Rahm Emanuel and Super Soakers, Joe Biden, huge inflatable castle things, a water slide, and he got hit in the eye with, oh, man! <clears throat> potato salad to coleslaw, potato salad to coleslaw. We have water hostels near the bocce ball. Water hostels near the bocce ball. I repeat, take the shot. So which reporters jumped at the chance to jump on Biden's big bouncy castle? Well, for starters, there was David Sanger of the New York Times hanging with Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel. There's CNN's Ed Henry and Wolf Blitzer with a couple of their best eye reporters. You think, you think with all those reporters there, they'd have better video. But still, it's fun to see politicians and the people we count on to hold them accountable super soaking each other. Fighting over who gets to sit shotgun in the White House briefing room. Jockeying for an invitation to barbecues. Are you journalists or are you rushing a sorority? <laughs> what I'm saying is this. If the public... If the public wants reporters to start holding politicians accountable for their actions, well, I guess the public just needs to really start throwing better parties or having better perks. Come on, guys. Won't you work for us? We'll build you a ball pit. Thomas, erstwhile dean of the White House Press Corps, resigned under pressure this week. Any comments on Israel? We're arresting everybody today. Any comments Tell them on to Israel? get the hell out of Palestine. Ooh. <laughs> Any better comments? <laughs> Remember, these people are occupied, and it's their land, not German, it's not Poland. So where should they go? What should they do? They go home. Where's the home? Poland. So the Jews, Germany. you think Jews go back to Poland and Germany? And, and America and everywhere else. Well, that's an ignominious way to end a career with a callous, stupid soundbite delivered no less to a rabbi on the occasion of Jewish Heritage Month. Who knows what motivated Helen Thomas's remark? Maybe it was her disgust with Israeli policy. Maybe it was hitherto closeted anti-Semitism. Maybe it was old age and the impunity that tends to offer for all manner of geriatric obstreperousness. Or maybe it was Helen Thomas just being Helen Thomas to a fault. This program has no opinion on whether this White House press room institution should be consigned to everlasting disgrace, but we do wish to observe that her crankiness helped keep presidents of the United States honest, or at least markedly less regal, for 50-some years. Here she is grilling Ronald Reagan. The experts say that the Russians are far ahead of us in some nuclear weaponry, and we are far ahead of them in terms of the Polaris missile and so forth. And we also have the capability of swift, massive retaliation against the Soviets. Under those circumstances, why don't we seek negotiations for a freeze now and carry on to reductions 
That way we can halt the making of doomsday weapons and save billions to help poor people. Helen, I know that there are people that have tried to figure this out. The truth of the matter isn't much of an incentive. That we are vulnerable now, right today, to a nuclear attack that we could not retaliate on? Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. She treated them all with perfunctory respect, but very little deference. Had her colleagues seen her less as a gadfly and more like a role model, I can think of a number of messes this country might have avoided. Ms. Thomas. President, you started this war, the war of your choosing, and you can end it alone today. Don't you understand? We brought the al-Qaeda into Iraq. Uh, actually, um, I was hoping to solve the... The fight to clean up our financial system is just one of the battles being duked out between big money and the public interest. Here's another, the fight over control of the Internet. This is crucial to every other battle between corporate and public America. At stake right now is what's called net neutrality. Essentially, that means the web should remain a small-d democratic forum for all comers, open and available to everyone. The big media companies that provide broadband for the Internet don't like that notion. They want the power to censor Internet content they don't like. And they want toll booths on the web so they can charge more for the privilege of driving in the fast lanes. You can learn more about this by going to our website at pbs.org slash We'll link you to a documentary special we produced four years ago called Net at Risk. Back in 2007, shortly after that report aired, the Associated Press reported that Comcast, the nation's largest cable provider, was manipulating the speed of web traffic and discriminating against certain customers. The Federal Communications Commission told Comcast to stop it. Comcast argued by that the commission had no business telling it how to manage network traffic. Now a federal court of appeals has come down on Comcast's side ruling that the FCC has only limited authority to regulate the Internet. At issue is whether the Internet is a medium of communications like the others the FCC has historically regulated, or just an information service beyond most government oversight. Advocates of net neutrality argue that if the FCC simply reclassifies broadband as a communication service, the Commission will then have the authority it needs to enforce an open Internet. With me now is Michael Copps, who is serving his second five-year term as an FCC commissioner. 
this one-time professor of history, influential Senate staffer, and assistant secretary of commerce, is an outspoken advocate for an open internet and a staunch opponent of media conglomeration. He just may be the most knowledgeable fellow in Washington on how communications policy affects you and me. Welcome, Commissioner Cox, back to the journal. Thank you for having me back. So let's start with some clarity of terms. What, what does net neutrality mean to you? Well, it's kind of an inelegant term for the need that we have to keep the most transformative technology that we have had. This is broadband and the Internet, I think, more transformative than anything since the printing press. How do we make sure that it achieves its promise and potential for the average American citizen. Our future is going to ride on broadband. How we get a job is going to ride on broadband. How we take care of our health, how we educate ourselves about our responsibilities as, uh, as citizens. This all depends upon being able to go where you want to go on that internet, to run the applications that you want to run, to attach the devices, to know what's going on. That's what net neutrality is all about. And it's absolutely imperative that we have a place, that we have a venue to go to, to make sure that that Internet is kept open. You have a choice. I mean, you can say, do we want our cable company or our telephone company to handle all of this, or do we want to make sure that the government has some oversight here? That's our decision to make as a people, as citizens. What, uh, who's going to control this uh, ultimately? Who's going to make sure? This isn't about regulating the internet. This is making sure that the internet is kept open and that others don't close the doors and become gatekeepers or uh, uh, the keepers of those toll booths that, that you talked about before. So is that metaphor app that Comcast and AT&T and Verizon want to set up a price system so that if you've got more money you get there and go faster than those if you don't have money? Is that crude? I think what history tells us is that if you're a business and you have the, the technical capacity to advance yourself by shortchanging somebody else or disadvantaging uh, somebody else, uh, and you have a financial incentive to do that, somebody's going to try. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm here blasting every company or every business executive that's out there, but somebody's going to try, and it's the bad apples that you've got to uh, uh, protect against. And your concern is that these big telecommunications agencies can monopolize the traffic that gets on the Internet, or at least yes. the speed at which they, we travel? Absolutely. But, but what does it mean, practically, then, that the federal appeals court said to the FCC, which has regulated uh, telephones, radio, television, in effect, you can't touch uh, right. broadband. You can't touch the net. Well, some people are saying that we're out of that business now. I don't uh, believe that's true. But I will tell you this. The previous FCC basically gave the courts a guilt-edged invitation to do what they did. The we Bush used, administration. Right. We used to... Under Michael Powell, who was the chairman at the time of the FCC? We used to call communications telecommunications. Uh, but at the behest of a lot of the big uh, companies back in 2002, over my strong and serious objections, we decided to call it something else and move it from that part of the law, which said telecommunications has to provide consumer protection and privacy, guarantee the public safety, and you have some oversight responsibility. We took it to another section that says, you know, it's kind of a never-never land. You don't really have to do anything, and we put it there. What did you we call it? We called it an information service. So you changed but, telecommunications to information service. What, what difference but, does that make? Because we robbed it of all of the responsibilities and protections that we had spent 20 or 30 years 
putting on to the telecommunications companies so we could cons protect consumers, uh, have some say in, in rates and how things were built and how things were shared and how we got them out, protecting privacy, uh, making sure that that telecommunications system really worked for the future of the country. Now, put it over here, it's, well, we can still do what we need to do by some ambiguous authority, and the court said, no, you can't. So, uh, so you're, you're proposing, as I understand it, to move it back, to redefine it again as yeah. a telecommunications Let's call service. it what it is. I don't think we have telephone companies and cable companies and all this. We have broadband companies, and they're all in there competing with one another. They're all looking for control of the distribution. Now they're looking for content, all the recipes for monopoly and duopoly that we have seen throughout our history. This is the, this is the way we communicate. We ought to look at it as a big ecosystem. And all this cable, radio, television, the internet is all part of this ecosystem. And you can't, you can't have legitimate public interest oversight of that if you go in with some stovepipe analysis. Well, this is telecom, this is cable. It's all the same thing. And we're all so dependent upon it. So we have to find a way to conduct that public oversight in a, in a holistic, in a systematic, and an intelligent fashion. So and I think we can use the, the law we have right now, if we reclassify, uh, to do that. The industry wrote a letter to the commission uh, and said that advocates of an open net who are coming to the FCC and asking you to reclassify what you do as telecommunications want to steer the debate, and I'm quoting from the letter, in a radical new way. I mean, they're calling you extremist and they're yeah. calling you radical. Because I want to call telecommunications telecommunications and go back to the openness that has characterized the net since, uh, uh, since it was first uh, invented in the laboratories of the uh, Department of Defense. That's not uh, extreme. That's not radical. That's called going back to basics. That's called Consumer Protection 101. How, how threatened is the whole idea of an open net? Oh, I think very. I think uh, very. I think there are powerful players that are opposed to it, are in a position to uh, uh, make their influence uh, uh, felt. None of these things are going to come easy. Uh, we've just been through the health insurance debate. We've got the financial debacle. None of this stuff gets solved without taking on, taking on a fight. Government doesn't work that way. You've studied its history. I've studied its history. Uh, uh, it's painful. It needs uh, movements. It needs grassroots support. It needs the people. You're saying there's a very strong populist element here? I think so. Populist interest being, meaning the people versus interest? Well, yes, I do. I think people are more interested in this. You know, we, we went through this uh, media ownership debate several years ago, and I think the powers that be at the Federal Communications Commission at that time said, oh, we can get rid of all of these ownership restrictions. We don't care how many uh, uh, broadcast outlets one company can hold, and nobody cares around the country. I mean, this is just too arcane. It's too sophisticated. We'll just do this inside the beltway. I said, let's go out and have some here. Oh, no, you don't want to have here. We'll just, we'll just take care of this here. But by the time we were through, Three million people had contacted the FCC and Congress to voice their displeasure, and we did have hearings at my insistence around the country where we would go for seven, eight, nine hours at night in town hall meetings with people talking about something's wrong in my media system, I'm not getting the news anymore, or I'm a minority, uh, uh, none of my news ever gets covered, or when I'm on TV, I'm there as a caricature of, uh, or a stereotype of something I'm not. People get it, people understand. Yeah, as you know, we covered some of those hearings that you call for around the country, and I still can see in my mind's eye, and I can also go to the video and look at the faces of ordinary people standing up and said, we care about media ownership. 
We told you a year ago when you came to Seattle that media consolidation is a patently bad idea. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. So with all due respect, I ask you, what part of that didn't you understand? I'm a Republican, and I'm a capitalist, but some areas of our private sector must be regulated. Freedom of information is too important. We must be proactive in protecting that fundamental freedom. If the FCC is here wanting to know if Chicago's residents are being well served, the answer is no. If local talent is being covered, the answer is no. If community issues are being treated sensitively, the answer is no. If minority groups getting the coverage and input that they need, the answer is no. The answer is no. If you look at the major free broadcast uh, outlets in Chicago, there is not one single political talk show hosted by an African American. That was a real revelation right. to me of the democratic right. thrust in our society. Right. And now fast forward to this, we're talking about the open internet and the future of broadband, which is just as important to them, and perhaps all of that media one day is going to migrate. Uh, over to the internet and they have a vested public interest in making sure that uh, uh, that those things are protected on the internet and this is a this is a tough question for uh, for America right now uh, here you've got this dynamic technology that thrives on openness uh, that thrives on innovation and all of that and you don't want to regulate or artificially limit it but at the end of the day, if that's where everything is moving, if that's where our national dialogue, our civic dialogue is moving, if that's how we're going to educate ourselves and all, there is a public interest component to that. How do you make that happen? In a global environment, the Internet is international. It runs so much differently. But still, at the end of the day, I think you have to come to that conclusion that we have a public interest in how this is used to inform and serve the American people. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Last night we were uh, talking about the fallout from the Israeli raid on the aid flotilla to Gaza. We showed this uh, footage of Israeli commandos coming down to the flotilla and being attacked uh, with clubs uh, by the uh, uh, people on, on the boat. Or did we show that footage? Turn on any media outlet other than this one. They're not going to show you this. That video, you're hard-pressed to see it here in America from media outlets besides Fox. Nobody seems willing to show that. Leaving the question, why? I, I match your quizzical look. The only reason they wouldn't show it is 
biased by the lamestream media. It's not even the lamestream media anymore. It's the shame stream media. And the blame, it's the anti-mame stream. <laughs> Only Glenn Beck and Fox had the balls to be fair to Israel on American television. <laughs> let's, let's admire Mr. Beck's courage again. Oh wait, I'm sorry, that's the same footage Glenn complained nobody else would show being shown on MSNBC's Hardball. Weird. Although, now to be fair, that aired around the same time as Glenn Beck, so he couldn't have known about it. I mean, I guess he could have switched over during commercial breaks, but then how would he learn about the intrinsic value of gold? Um, so, Hardball was the only other outlet that aired this uh, uh, footage. Well, except for on CNN the day before, and that other time on MSNBC, and then there was, I guess, CBS aired it, and also NBC, uh, ABC, even the Pravda outpost known as PBS. Uh, headline news showed it. CNBC, for Christ's sakes, Univision. Univision showed it. The only place you didn't see it was Sesame Street, and they, oh my God, even they showed it. Oh my God. That all aired in the 24 hours before Glenn Beck called out the media for not airing the footage. Now, this can mean only one of two things. Mr. Beck lives in a cloistered world of paranoid delusion that is impervious to a priori evidence that contradicts his worldview, or, or, and I believe this to be more likely, Glenn Beck has become so powerful that his wife's words can now be acted upon retroactively. <laughs> and if that is true, I ask Mr. Beck now, can you talk to my parents and get me that bicycle I wanted for my birthday when I was 12? Oh, wait, wait. Oh my God, he did it. And oh my God, I ran it into Hitler. No! Industry responds, and they did say in the letter of February 22nd to the commission regulating the internet as these parties propose, these radical and extremist parties, these uh, Bolsheviks like Michael Cox, <laughs> regulating you. the internet as these parties propose would be a profound mistake with harmful and lasting consequences for consumers and our economy. I don't think we're talking about regulating the internet. I'm talking about keeping the dynamism of the internet that's there. I'm talking about keeping it uh, open. We've had, uh, generally speaking, with uh, with a few exceptions, uh, openness on the uh, on the internet. So we want to preserve that. What we're trying to be careful of is that the gatekeepers and the toll booth uh, operators aren't just regulating the internet 
for their self-interest or for competitive advantage. And I'm not saying they shouldn't compete or anything like that, obviously their businesses and all, but at the end of the day, again, we need to know what's going on in that uh, network management, know how they're using this uh, technology and have that visionary public policy out there that says, we understand how important this is to the future of this country and there are some responsibilities that go with the great power that you as companies have been given. How powerful is this industry you're up against? I think it's a very powerful industry, an industry that increasingly has control over how we converse with one another, other than sitting across the table and talking, how we converse with one another on the media, through journalism and all of that. That's maybe the most important industry in the country or in the world. You know, if your big issue is energy dependence or climate change or health insurance or expanding equal opportunity, this issue of the future of the media, now the media on broadband, has to be your number two issue because on that one depends on how that big issue, your number one issue, gets filtered and funneled to the American people. But a practical question, when I drive into New York City from New Jersey or Long Island, whether I come Highway 80, 78, 46, 3, what, all these highways uh, on, from the west converge into the Hudson River, and we have to come under a tunnel to get into New York City. So the traffic has to jockey and reciprocate and come from many tributaries down to a single stream moving through uh, under, the, it, under the river in that tunnel. I mean, there are toll booths there right. in order to regulate, right. Uh, right. direct the right. traffic. If the Internet doesn't have some means of traffic control, uh, aren't we all going to have a big jam up? Maybe we need more tunnels. Maybe we need these companies instead of figuring out how they're just going to make uh, a buck off the current infrastructure we have. Maybe we need more of that broadband infrastructure. And certainly that, that should be clear now. You can't get high-speed broadband in many places in this country. Uh, in some places you can get it, but it's too expensive. We've got one-third of the nation right now that is not connected to broadband. You know, back in the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt said, I yeah. see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, and ill-nourished. Uh, now we have one-third of a nation that's not connected to this, and I think in the long run, that's how we're going to increasingly educate our kids and care for our health and solve all of these other problems, whether it's energy, environment, civic engagement, and journalism. All of this hinges mightily, hinges dramatically on how we get that broadband out to people? Do we get it to every corner of the land? Do we get it to the inner city, to the rural countryside, to the minorities, to the disabled, to Native uh, American country? Are all of those people going to be uh, equal participants? That, is you that know, why we're in, behind so many other industrial countries? We're behind because we never had a strategy. We just sat by blithely watching and saying, oh, the invisible hand and the God-given glories of the marketplace are going to take care of all of this stuff. And we found ourselves in 15th or 20th or 24th place, wherever it is, in terms of broadband penetration. So uh, fast forward, finally, we got a government in 2008 who understood the importance of this, who understood that it's as American as apple pie to have public and private sector partnerships to build broadband, who understood that the private sector, which is the locomotive and the engine of our economy, does best when it's guided by visionary public policy. We always did. That's how we built 
So we built this country. You go back to the very beginning, you know, uh, when the settlers trekked across the mountains, the challenge, the infrastructure challenge of that era was how do they get their products to market? So we built turnpikes and canals and bridges and roads. Uh, later on in the early part of the next century, regional railroads and transcontinental railroads. Now, it wasn't 100% unanimity to do this, but by and large, we figured out a way to get it done, even as late as the highway system. Uh, in the uh, 1950s, eyes now, or, or telecommunications or electricity. But all of a sudden, fast forward to the uh, 1980s. Oh, no, we don't need. That was the un American part. We don't need to use our government to help the American people. And we strayed from our past, and that's how we got to 15 or 20. Do you realize that when you talk this way, you talk about the public interest sphere, you talk about democracy, you talk about any kind of effort to curtail the power of the market, Glenn Beck's going to call you a communist, a socialist, or worse? You realize that, don't you? Uh, I guess so. What's your <laughs> what, how, how do you deal with Seriously, how do you deal with those kind of charges when they keep hurling at you 24-7? I think you stop uh, playing defense and start playing offense and talk about what you really believe and try to talk sense to the American people. Uh, but it goes beyond that because we have to have a, a uh, institution of journalism in this country that gets real facts and information out to people. We've always had the chatterers. Uh, we've always had precursors of, uh, you know, raging cable or, or, uh, or talkative uh, radio, and we always value opinion. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody's not entitled to their own set of facts, and what this country needs right now is a kind of resource-hungry, expensive journalism that is fast disappearing to provide those kind of facts. And that gets us wow. to the new media that we were talking about and the old media, too. Newspapers and broadcast still produce 85 or 90 percent of the news and information that the American people get even the news that they see on the internet. And it's not just talking about uh, what's going to happen 10 years from now on the internet, although that's an important question. How are we going to have viable journalism there? But how do we get from here to there? Because I don't think we can take another five or 10 years of the kind of diminution of journalism, closing of newsrooms, the near demise of investigative reporting. We can't, we can't tolerate that and expect that we're going to have the American people uh, sufficiently informed to do what they need to do. But you know, since 2001, American right. newsrooms have lost more than 25% of their full-time staffers. Right. Uh, newspapers are struggling. Look at this, you know, the, oh, oh, just recently the Pew Research Center's Project for Excellence in Journalism released a survey of newspaper and yeah. broadcast editors, right. dinosaurs like me. <laughs> uh, fewer than half said they're confident their operations will survive another 10 years. And just yeah. about a third of them said they'd only last five years or less. Now, one of the reasons for the demise of my craft in print and broadcasting is the growing influence of the Internet, right? Uh, partially right, yes. I don't think completely right. I think we can say Internet and the economy have been the, uh, the downfall. But I think equally or more so what has been destructive of, uh, of journalism uh, it's just the experience we have been through with the tsunami of industry consolidation that we've had. And we could see this coming uh, with fewer and fewer companies gobbling up uh, all of these uh, outlets and playing by the rules of this hyper-speculation. I think newspapers are going to survive, and I think uh, the broadcast is going to come back. What I'm not convinced of 
is that newspapers in their new survival mode are going to be able to, uh, unaided, support the kind of in-depth journalism that we need to have and get those reporters back. I think they can get by with that slim-down newsroom or the closed-down newsroom. That doesn't, that doesn't help the country very much. So. so I think at some point they have to get off the defensive and start talking about public support for public media. What do you mean? I mean that in the United States of America, we spend $1.35 per capita per annum supporting public media. In public other countries, media, you mean public broadcasting, public, public radio, public radio, absolutely. Community access. Right. Lots of other countries are spending fifty, seventy-five, a hundred dollars or more, and you kind of get what you pay for. And they're supporting that, and it's not interfering with the democracy of those nations in Denmark or Finland or Great Britain or places like that. You know, we have twenty-seven states now, twenty-seven states that do not have an accredited reporter on Capitol Hill. How do you hold the powerful accountable if over half the states aren't even covering what that office holder is doing? I see it at the FCC. I mean, far fewer reporters on, on the beat talking, questioning what, what I do or, or, or what my colleagues do. We're, we're at a point where we have got to take action on these things. You know, it's the old, I'm, I'm a great believer in the idea of reform cycles in American history. Uh, I think well, you, you have an old historian, right? I am. Well, I'm with emphasis on the old, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, I think, uh, you know, these, the, the cycles of reform come around uh, all too uh, infrequently, and uh, there is a uh, tide in the affairs of man which, taken that the flood leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of our life, is bound in shallows and in miseries, as, as Shakespeare said, uh, to uh, rob that of its poetry and put it in a text message. I think it says ride the tide, <laughs> and I want to ride the tide. I think you have that opportunity of reform that opened in this country a couple of years ago. But these windows don't stay open forever. We don't know how widely they open. And we have an opportunity now to do some of these things. And if we can't solve the complete problem, make some down payments while we consider the larger comprehensive problems. But I don't think any of these problems are going to be resolved until the American people really get fired up about them and that's happened before and what we have to show them now is that there are folks who want to tackle these problems who've got some ideas for tackling them and now we've got to send a message to uh, to uh, all of our uh, uh, elected representatives and everybody else that we're expecting some action the future is now the future is now if you can get access to it that's it. that's the question isn't it You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. I wanted to check in with an old friend. You remember ABC and Nightline with Ted Koppel? I used to love that show. It started out during the Iran hostage crisis and ended up being the standard bearer, the gold standard for uh, an investigative news journalism type show. 
In fact, many people point to Ted Koppel's interview with the Michael Brown Brownie, heck of a job Brownie, that turned public opinion during the Katrina crisis. Well, I remember when Ted Koppel signed off from Nightline, he implored us to keep watching Nightline because if we didn't, they were going to replace it with some stupid comedy show. And you know comedy shows, they never inform you. So I decided, I decided to take a look at ABC's Nightline last night and see just what they were talking about. So many stories in the in the news today are perfect for Nightline. There's the oil debacle in the Gulf, right? An ecological disaster that's unparalleled. It, it's it's going to be found out to be caused by malfeasance, corruption, regulators being bought off, people not doing what they were supposed to. It's the perfect kind of story for ABC's Nightline to investigate. Plus, there's the stock market. They're still unregulated two years after they caused the econ- economy to crash, and there was a thousand-point crash just last week that nobody has still figured out. A perfect story for ABC Nightline to investigate. Plus the immigration debate in Arizona. And a new Supreme Court justice got nominated. So I couldn't wait to turn on ABC's Nightline to see what stories they were going to highlight. Tonight on Night. First of all, I love the music. You got to have that kind of music on a news show. It, it says something important is happening and it's happening fast and we're on it. Oh, ABC Nightline. All right, lay it on me. Here comes some news. Tonight on Nightline, the child whisperer. Pushing, poking, prodding. The playground can be a chaotic, even dangerous place. But troublemakers, beware. Can this man rehab, recess, and cut out the chaos? I see the playground whisperer. A story so important, you didn't even know you needed to know about it. What's Nightline's next story? Dressing with the stars. From top to toe, Rihanna's necklace, that Kim Kardashian swimsuit, Taylor Swift style, red carpet dazzle or sidewalk chic. It's the hot new guide to do-it-yourself glamour on a budget. Perfect. Dressing with the stars. Another no-nonsense news story. For Ah, thank you, Nightline. Plus, supreme decision. President Obama announces an historic pick for the High Court. Tonight, everything you need to know about Elena Kagan. See, and then they do the personal interest story at the end, you know, the little afterthought that makes you feel good. You know, the uh, the historic pick of a Supreme Court justice. And they're going to tell you everything you need to know. I'm sure they're going to tell you everything you need to know about her, like, you know, what color her hair used to be and uh, where she gets her nails done. And how is she going to keep those robes stylish in this economy? From the global resources of ABC News with Terry Moran, Martin Bashir, and Cynthia McFadden in New York City. This is Nightline. That's right. And those are the stories you need to know brought to you by the global resources of ABC News. It takes only a global resource news agency could tell you how to dress like the stars and let you know what it's like to be a playground whisperer. And then I went over to the rebroadcast of The Daily Show and they were talking about what led to the banking meltdown last week. And what the causes were, what was really happening with the oil spill and the regulatory bodies that were supposed to be regulating them. And then they had an interview with an author who told us what we need to do to fix the economy. <laughs> I'm sure glad they didn't get rid of ABC News Nightline and replace it with some stupid comedy show.
After squeezing health care reform through Congress in recent weeks, the Obama administration is moving on. Health care is done, so what's next? I think it seems clear financial regulatory reform cracking down on... Financial regulation, which I think is going to be the next big issue on the president's... Next up, retooling government regulation of the financial system in an effort to head off future meltdowns. But if, as we reported last week, most Americans have a hard time understanding health care, what are our chances of cutting through the emotions and preconceptions that fog the debate over financial reform? National Public Radio's Adam Davidson has spent the last two years breaking down the economic crisis on, for example, the Giant Pool of Money episode of This American Life and on NPR's podcast Planet Money. And he uses clear, simple language to explain the complicated. But he says financial regulation has proven resistant to even his brand of explanatory journalism. Most topics I've covered, there's a Cliff Notes version that at least helps you understand the bigger stuff you don't understand. I find that when you simplify regulatory reform, you distort it so much that you don't understand it at all. I have not found a way to tell the story narratively where you're simplifying it but retaining the essence of it. Is it about the conventions of journalism that make this subject so hard to tackle? I think that there are many things in the conventions of journalism that make it hard to tackle, but I also think it is the subject itself. One of the formative journalistic experiences in my life was covering the war in Iraq, and you had all these ethnic and religious groups that most people hadn't heard of, Sunnis, Shiites, Kurds, and they're fighting for things most people didn't know about. Turned out that was actually not that hard to get across, I found. Then the financial crisis became the main focus of my work, and I thought, oh boy, this is totally different because at least in Iraq, you had things like guns, bombs, political parties. You had words that we know. Here's a financial crisis about subprime mortgages and collateralized debt obligations and interest rate variations due to risk spreads. I mean, the language is totally opaque. Well, with a lot of hard work, we were able to translate the words and help the average person at least get a good, solid understanding of what was at stake for the various players in the crisis, why the crisis might have happened, who made mistakes. But regulatory reform is just another level of impenetrability. We just have not been able to, in a four-minute radio story, in an hour on the radio, in writing long explanations on the blog, we have not found a way to convey it in anything like a piece of journalism that a non-expert consumer can pick up and get value out of. I used to have a linguistics teacher who said to me that if you can't put something into words, then you really don't understand it. I might really not understand it. It's very, very complicated. (laughs) And the more I delve into it, the more I realize nobody fully understands it. Also, it's not just that it's too complicated. It's counterintuitive. The more someone tells you this is a morality play, this is about bad bankers and good ordinary citizens, the more they're lying to you. We see a lot of people getting ripped off. We see the banks suffering very little as a result of mistakes that they made. Why isn't it a morality play? I guess the way to put it is not that it's not a morality play, but it is thousands of morality plays. You cannot say that bankers are one group and citizens are one group. That's nuts. We know on the citizen side, just probably from any family picnic, that citizens are responsible, citizens are irresponsible. 
Well, banks are too. You have investment banks, you have commercial banks, you have small banks, you have large banks, you have hedge funds, you have all sorts of people doing all sorts of different things on Wall Street. And there is no one agenda. There certainly is a morality play to be told. There are certainly names of people who clearly did things that are probably immoral and probably should be punished. I'm just saying it's not a simple morality play. And there is no piece of regulation that is good for banking. It's good for one part of banking. In the case of regulation, this is a binary argument. Generally, you have the Democrats or the public advocates on one side portrayed as wanting more regulation. And then on the other side, you have the Republicans who feel that the market works better the less the heavy hand of government is intruding into it. Right? I think that is the frame. Yeah, I think you're right that that is a core frame that lots of people have. But that's exactly wrong. For example, Democrats, yes, they generally pay lip service to being against the banks. But where is the center of power of banking in America? New York, Connecticut, Boston, Democratic strongholds. And you have many, many big city Democrats who are extremely close to Wall Street, to the banking system, to the insurance system. And who are some people who are extremely skeptical and always have been for hundreds of years of these big city northeast bankers, rural areas, especially in the south. That's a very long-standing trope in American politics, and you have lots of Republicans from those districts. So you actually look at how they vote, the legislation they craft, where they get their money, how they exercise their power in the financial system. It's quite clear that it does not break down in that way. Another sort of simple frame we hear a lot is whether or not this is an overhaul. Well, a massive, massive financial overhaul is now on its way to the full U.S. Senate. The Obama administration and Democrats in Congress said Wednesday that an overhaul of financial regulation was the next legislative priority. Senator Christopher Dodd, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, will unveil legislation today to overhaul the nation's financial regulation system. There were an awful lot of people who are experts on banking regulation who had hoped that this would be an opportunity to look over our system and overhaul it. Nobody ever designed the U.S. financial system. There was a crisis in 1907. Congress responded with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Then there was a crisis in the 30s. Congress responded with a whole host of reforms. Basically, they respond to the last crisis. They do so in a way that's extremely political. So I think there was some hope that we would do something like what the British did in the 80s, which is say, forget it. We're getting rid of all the history and we're starting from scratch. We're not doing anything like that. The basic structure of our financial system will be close to identical. There will be some tweaks but it's just not fair to call it an overhaul. There's another problem with reporting this story. You spoke with former Senator Ben Campbell of Colorado, who was on the banking committee, and he said this about regulation. Oh, God, it's boring. Yeah, that's right. I was on uh, banking four or four years in the state legislature and on banking a short period of time in the Senate. Uh, uh, I think it was the most boring thing I ever did. I just say nothing. I didn't understand some of that stuff. Do you think the sheer soul-sucking tedium of it is part of the problem? Uh, it's all about slight adjustments in interest rates and various legal schemes. Yes, it results in massive, huge impacts on all of our lives. It means our financial system is more or less fragile. It means... Our economy grows or doesn't grow, but it is so, so, so boring. And we have tried. We've used songs. We've used theater sketches. We've 
interviewed over a hundred economists trying to find the ones who can just really nail an explanation in a clear, concise way. And honestly, like we've picked off pieces, we've told little elements of it, but the big here is what regulation is all about and we're going to tell you how it works, we have not been able to crack. I feel like I have seen the edge of what journalism can accomplish, of what journalism is capable of, and the bulk of financial regulatory reform is on the other side of that edge. Back America rally uh, that Glenn Beck was headlining in Texas. Um, it's so funny because the largest progressive uh, conference used to be called Take Back America. So now the Republicans are like, no, 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 we need to take it back. So they're doing their own rallies inspired by Glenn Beck. So Beck, of course, has his usual uh, Looney Tunes quotes. He says, do you believe this is God's land? Do you believe our Constitution was divinely inspired? No, I don't. Not at all. Okay, I believe it was written by a bunch of guys who didn't actually believe uh, or the same things you believe, Glenn Beck, at all. They were, at best, deists. They were not the fundamentalist Christians. In fact, they made a secular country, divinely inspired. It's not like as Madison was writing the Constitution, he was like, God, what do you think I should write for the Third Amendment? Okay, right. No, he wrote it as a rationalist, as a secular rationalist. All right, continuing, he said, Beck says, why do you believe those things? If God is with us, who can possibly stand against us? The answer is no one. It's almost verbatim a speech from Osama bin Laden. Now, I'm not saying Beck has caused the same kind of harm that bin Laden has, but it's, the language is nearly identical. They say, God is with us, and if God is with us then who can stand against the mighty Allah slash God? It's nonsensical. Well, how do you know God is with you? What, did he whisper it in your ear? Are you a prophet? What does the Picard say? Whose side is he on? Right, I love that Star Trek reference. Anyway, so now that's Glenn Beck, but we're just getting warmed up. Uh, Representative Louis Gohmert also spoke up. He's one of my favorite congressmen. He's a Republican from Texas. This is the guy who earlier had said uh, that... Washington, and I'm not kidding, had been invaded by demons, and that's why the Democrats passed health care reform. I, I wonder how that worked. Do they snatch up the Democratic representatives' bodies, souls, to get them to sign? But the Democrats were already in favor of it. So whose did they snatch? The parliamentarian that allowed them to do reconciliation? Who's, where did the demons go, and what did they do? I mean, seriously, these people are United States congressmen, and they're absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. 
they think, oh, oh my God, here comes the demons. Oh, no, there, of course, healthcare reform passed, demons came by. All right, now, so those are the uh, caliber of people speaking, but we're going to go today to um, Representative Leo Berman, uh, who is from Tyler, Texas, and he, of course, he's a Republican, he's a state representative, and uh, <laughs> he's got a unique idea on God and, and Obama as well. He says, quote, I believe that Barack Obama is God's punishment on us today. But in 2012, we're going to make Obama a one-term president! Well, that's interesting. Uh, did God decide to do just like a four-year plague upon the land and decide to pull it back? And if so, and you're t having conversations with him, and he says you're going to win in 2012, then take it easy, hoss. What do you need the rally for? God's already got it preordained. I mean, are you trying to convince God with your Take Back America rally? God's plague upon us. God's punishment on us. Mm. Well, I, I do feel quite punished for being a naughty, naughty boy. Uh, you know, by the way, if God actually punished us at all, he might have done that in 08 when we had that financial collapse that caused 10% unemployment and nearly destroyed the worldwide economy, that was kind of cataclysmic. And who was president back then? Oh, right, George W. Bush. God's a funny dude, man. He's got a funny way of showing us he doesn't like Obama, but liked Bush. Curious. I can't wait to hear back from uh, Representative Berman on his thoughts on that. Is Obama's Harriet Myers, his, his Bush-like misstep. Kind of sucks, because he's still recovering from his last Bush-like misstep. It's been called Obama's Katrina. Is this going to be Obama's Katrina? President Obama's Katrina. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like no matter what happens during the Obama administration, there's the perfect Bush f*** <laughs> for the occasion. Good health care be Obama's Iraq. Is this, as some are suggesting, Barack Obama's Enron? Unemployment rate from 9 to 11 could be Obama's 9-11. Are we now watching Obama's mission accomplished speech? They've got their, you know, brown, heck of a job brownie moment. This is Obama's my pet goat moment. It's like Bush has a set of greeting cards. Oh, you displayed a complete lack of self-awareness during a time that will be seen as a test of your leadership? Well, there's a Bush up for that. Now, the crazy part is, it's conservatives and Republicans that are in the biggest rush to make the comparisons. Remember that terrible thing that Bush did? 
that we fought for eight years to convince you wasn't bad but actually good? Well, now we use those very incidents as the low watermark for your guy. And they're not just interested, they're not just, they're not just interested in comparing Obama's new problems with Bush's old problems. They're also looking to bequeath all that Bush oversaw like some kind of cancerous heirloom. Just Barack Obama's economy. This is now Obama's deficits. They, they, this is his debt. And it's pretty rapidly going to become the Obama recession. Afghanistan is President Obama's war now. It's like these guys treat the country like a sleazy used car salesman. Hey, I got to tell you, this is a beautiful country. Runs like a dream. We have kept it totally tuned for eight years. It's cherry. You're not going to have a problem with it at all. Oh, you'll take it? It's your piece of shit now. And the best part... The best part is they can't even recognize their own tacit admission of the previous administration's failure. At this point, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of those I miss Bush billboards all around the country. Pretty soon, you know, people are going to start printing out bumper strips that say, we miss George Bush. Yeah, I really miss the days when America was being let down and failed by a patriot. <laughs> You know, for these conservative pundits, this might be their choke on a pretzel moment. Thanks for listening, everyone. So I want to try something a little different today at the end of the show. I'm actually going to play the audio of a video for you and then attempt to get you some of the visuals as well. And I'll get to that right after I thank a couple of members who make the show possible. Uh, Judith R. signed up for her membership back on February 23rd and, uh, and just, you know, just signed up for a monthly membership, has been sticking with the show ever since. It's a huge help, obviously. Thanks, Judith. And, uh, and Kent W. signed up for uh, a full year starting on March 25th. So huge thanks to uh, Kent and Judith and all the members who make this show what it is. So th this video I want to play is it's about three minutes or so, and it is all about uh, learning how uh, kind of the, the function of leadership, uh, the function of uh, movement building, and kind of uh, breaking down exactly how that works in a really uh, interesting way. And uh, I absolutely love this video. I think that about 90% of the impact of it will translate uh, through the audio. Um, but then in addition, for, for those of you listening to the enhanced version of the show, which is the vast majority of you, uh, there will be embedded in the show snapshots of this video. And so uh, the, the video itself is taken from kind of a, a shaky hand camera uh, and then with narration on top of it. And it is unedited video, you know, the, the video uh, streams straight through the whole way, there are no cuts, and it is focused on uh, a group of people who are uh, watching an event, a live event, at a, an outdoor venue somewhere, and the film starts focusing on one guy who has stepped aside from the crowd, taken off his shirt, and is doing a crazy dance. So that's how it starts, and it goes from there. And so if you're watching the enhanced version, I will take snapshots of the relevant points and have it 
progress and the video will progress through the show as you uh, as you hear the audio. So let, let's try that and uh, here it is. If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. So there you go. That is the uh, that's the whole video. If you want to see it for yourself, it is on YouTube and probably other places. But on YouTube, it's called Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy, and it is also the bonus video clip today for anybody using the Best of Left iPhone or uh, iPod Touch application. So you can see it there as well. Now, for the most part, I just want you to kind of let that sink in and interpret it however you want to interpret it, apply those uh, lessons to your own life and however it fits with your own life. What I do want to say though, is that I, I look at this as such an amazing example of the power of human psychology. You know, the, almost the laws of human nature and human psychology are damn near as entrenched as the laws of physics. You know, any individual person is completely unpredictable, but groups of people, so often it's like, 
it's like we could be you know acting by a script we're so predictable as, as groups so i just find that incredibly interesting myself and then when you apply that sort of uh, knowledge to politics and you begin to understand uh, you know how you know th this was a, a movement of people dancing in the grass but real movements and political movements start in just the exact same way uh, and and it's really important for morale I think a lot of the time to know when you're a part of a movement and uh, whatever stage in the movement you find yourself in if you kind of know the overarching storyline if you know where you are in the story and you know what part you're playing, it helps you see it, the, the entire event from a larger perspective, which can uh, be a real mor morale booster. Whereas, uh, you know, if, if you think you're out there and you're on your own and, you know, nobody's helping you, it can be daunting and depressing, but that's how it starts. So I just, I, as I said, I really like that and just wanted to share that with everyone. Hope it went over well with the, the enhanced additions. If you didn't understand that, the basic idea is if you could be watching either in iTunes or on your iPod or iPhone or whatever you're watching, then uh, slides would have been going and you know clicking through as the video was playing so you can go back and see that. So that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Please continue to support the show by telling everyone you know about it. Uh, stay connected to the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Spread the word online that way as well. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and all the music used in this and every episode, all of that is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside, the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month thanks entirely to the support of the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Shining shoes.